Ladies and gentlemen, may I welcome you, although I'm an interloper myself, uh, to the LSE's uh, Law and Other Things series. Uh, those of us who, who live our lives in the law, it, it's a revelation to know that there are other things, but um, that's what the series, and a very fruitful one it is, is about. Um, my, my name is Stephen Sedley, but my only role here this evening is uh, a very pleasurable one, introducing my very good friend and colleague, Sir Michael Kirby. Uh, <clears throat> if I gave you a full CV of Michael, I'd take up the entire time for the lecture. Uh, but um, he at least um, fulfilled one historic role. It was always said by the Romans that important births were uh, associated with great portents and, and events of the world. And Michael's birth was followed almost immediately by the Second World War. <laughs> the result is that um, he's recently reached retirement age, and um, his retirement so far has been a total failure. He's as active as ever, and it's a great pleasure that he is. Um, he was the youngest judge um, ever appointed to the Australian Federal Court as long ago as 1983. He became president of the New South Wales Court of Appeal, an office in which he served with very great distinction until he was, as they say, translated to the High Court of Australia, where, again, he has served with great distinction, if not always with the uh, unanimity of, of his colleagues. Uh, he's been widely honoured, but I, I won't embarrass him by re reciting. Oh, I don't mind. <laughs> in, in that case, I certainly won't. Uh, but um, I will say that for many of us um, in the common law world, uh, Michael Kirby is a model judge uh, who um, is, he won't be offended if I say this, orthodox and rigorous in his reasoning, but radical in his solutions. And that's a difficult combination uh, to achieve and maintain. His subject tonight is sexuality and empire, the Delhi High Court and Macaulay's sodomy offence. That sounds like an awful lot for one lecture. <laughs> Look forward to hearing it. Michael. Uh, Lord Justice Sedley, uh, Baroness Hale, uh, Justice Cranston, uh, and uh, dear colleagues and friends, thank you very much for coming out on a uh, rainy night uh, on a Friday night when there are all sorts of wonderful things to be doing in this magnificent city. Uh, but uh, for the next 45 minutes you're going to hear about a very interesting and important case and about the lessons it has uh, for the world and especially for the Commonwealth of Nations in doing something about a long neglected issue of empire. Now, like many things, it all begins with Captain Cook. Uh, Captain Cook, uh, as you know, discovered uh, and mapped the east coast of Australia back in uh, 1770. Uh, and uh, within uh, the, the decade after that, uh, the British Crown lost the American colonies and had to find somewhere to send their convicts. And that led to Governor Philip coming to Australia. But all of this time, whilst these important events were happening, um, Blackstone was writing his great taxonomy of the English law. That taxonomy collected the law as it was. The law that he collected was 
included uh, the law on so-called unnatural uh, sexual offences. Uh, that became the basis of uh, the common law that was exported to the many colonies of the Crown. Uh, and in addition to that, statutes were drafted which included the sodomy offence. In fact, there were three statutes on offer. Uh, the first was the statute which uh, was adopted in India, uh, drawn by uh, Thomas Babington Macaulay. Um, that uh, model, uh, the Indian Penal Code, was uh, made the law for the uh, Government of India in 1861. There were two other models on offer. One was a model by James Fitzjames Stephen and another by Sir Samuel Griffith, the first Chief Justice of Australia. Strangely enough, the Griffith Code, uh, which was based mainly on the um, Macaulay Code, uh, had a great influence throughout Africa and uh, the code that was designed for Queensland is used in many parts of Africa and the Caribbean and they faithfully looked to the decisions of the Supreme Court of Queensland and the High Court of Australia in interpreting their code. <clears throat> that code, like the Fitzjames Stephen Code and the Macaulay Code, all included a provision similar to Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code. That is the, the decision on so-called unnatural offences, uh, which was the subject of the case about which I'm going to tell you tonight. Um, and uh, variants of this code are still in force in 41 of the 53 member countries of the Commonwealth of Nations, 41 of 53. Uh, and I began with Blackstone because he was followed in France in the early uh, 19th century by the great codifiers of France, Napoleon saying that when all of his empires were lost, uh, he would be remembered for his codes. So it has proved. And the codifiers of the laws of France got rid of the old sodomy offences of France. The consequence of that has been that in the empires of the world, it's the British Empire that exported the sodomy offence. <clears throat> uh, the French Empire didn't. Uh, and uh, the Dutch Empire, which had adopted the French codified laws, didn't. Indonesia, the largest Islamic country in the world, has never had uh, a law against sodomy. Uh, and uh, similarly, the Russian Empire, the German Empire, all of these being derivatives from the French civil law tradition, doesn't have these provisions. These are a peculiarly... British thing. So I want to tell you all that in this audience here in London. This is something Britain gave the world uh, and that the world is clinging on to long after Britain got rid of it. Uh, in early 2009, a challenge was brought to the constitutional validity of Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code. That challenge was brought by an NGO called the NAS Foundation. Uh, this is an NGO which is concerned with work uh, in the struggle against HIV in India, uh, and it includes in its work work for so-called MSM, 
men who have sex with men, that expression being used for the uh, identification of the sexual act, which is the target of the code, uh, and because many people don't specifically identify themselves as gay or homosexual men, but the target of the code is the sexual act, and therefore that is the way in which in most United Nations documents uh, this group cohort in the community is described. Um, the case of the NAS Foundation had a great lineup of respondents. They sort of listed just about everybody they could think of amongst the respondents. And amongst the respondents, the Union of India came in on two bases. First of all, they came in representing the Department of Home Affairs, the Ministry of Home Affairs, and they also came in representing the Ministry of Health. And the only peculiarity, as was pointed out by the judges in the decision, uh, was that those two voices of the Union of India could not have been more diametrically opposed in the message they were giving to the court. The Department of Health was saying, yes, the, the petitioner is right, uh, the legislation is unconstitutional, uh, and the Department of Home Affairs, represented by the Acting Solicitor General of India, was saying, no, the petitioner is wrong and you shouldn't disturb uh, the provision which has been in force for 149 years. Uh, resolving that peculiarity became the task of the two judges who sat in the case. <clears throat> One was Justice A.P. Shah, uh, a very uh, able Bombay barrister, a barrister of the Bombay High Court, um, which was one of the presidency courts in India. Uh, the Bombay High Court, the Delhi High Court, uh, the Calcutta High Court and the Madras High Court are the still continuing high courts. They haven't renamed the Madras High Court, the Chennai High Court or the Bombay High Court because it's very important to those courts and to the practitioners before them that these are royal courts. They inherit the prerogative of the Crown and they still contend they have the generality of the powers of the Crown uh, to do right to all manner of people. Anyway, uh, the Justice Shah started in Bombay. He went to Madras as Chief Justice uh, of uh, the Madras High Court and then uh, last year he was appointed Chief Justice of the Delhi High Court. And he um, uh, had the case before him on remitter from the Supreme Court of India. In 2004 an application was made by the Union of India, at that time speaking with one voice, uh, to um, uh, dismiss the case as unarguable, as not showing a reasonably arguable proposition. And the Delhi High Court, differently constituted, did just that, dismissed it. But the NAS Foundation took that case then up to the Supreme Court of India, seeking an order vacating uh, that dismissal, and that order was made by the Supreme Court of India, which directed the Delhi High Court to uh, relist the matter and hear the matter on its merits. And so it did, and Justice A.P. Shah, Chief Justice, and Justice S. Muralidida uh, constituted the Delhi High Court for the purpose of the application. The focus of the application 
was for a limited order uh, invalidating Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, um, and uh, it was limited by reference to the exclusion of two groups from the application of Section 377, um, so that if the uh, petitioners were right, the section would continue to refer to these groups, uh, namely non-consensual uh, so-called unnatural offences uh, and uh, sexual offences against minors under the age of 18, so that the petitioners sought uh, the exclusion of those groups from the invalidation, but a declaration that, except for those two groups excluded, the provision of Section 377 was unconstitutional. Um, the factual basis which the court accepted on the footing of the affidavits which were filed in the Delhi High Court uh, was that there were about um, uh, 25 uh, lakhs, that's 2.5 million Indians who were uh, homosexual and who were affected by the, um, the law. That's about 5% of the Indian population if you include also women uh, in the uh, group uh, and therefore double the number. Uh, but um, the law of Section 377 is targeted only at uh, male sex. It doesn't target uh, female um, sexual uh, intercourse. Uh, the factual evidence accepted by the Delhi High Court included some pretty horrible uh, paragraphs describing um, violence uh, and uh, forced sex, uh, obligations to pay hush money, negative discriminatory action against groups in Lucknow in 2002, in Bangalore in 2004, and in Madras at a time when Chief Justice Shah was Chief Justice of the Madras High Court in 2007. So all of these facts were set out uh, as accepted by the court uh, and um, this was the factual footing upon which the Delhi High Court approached the issue of unconstitutionality. The petitioners relied upon a number of uh, provisions in the Indian Constitution the Independence Constitution of 1950 of the Union of India, uh, they were that um, the law, Section 377, violated Article 14 uh, of the Bill of Rights of the Indian Constitution, which provides uh, for equality of all persons before the law, uh, and um, secondly, that it violated Article 15 uh, by which the state is forbidden from discriminating against persons, uh, including on the grounds of sex. Uh, Article 19, which reserves to all citizens, uh, not all people, but all citizens, freedom of expression, and uh, the argument was advanced that sexuality was one form of expression. And Article 21... Uh, which um, forbids the state from depriving any person of liberty except in accordance with law, which has been very widely interpreted in the Supreme Court of India as meaning um, non-arbitrary. Uh, non you can't do 
uh, act, bring action, have action against people, laws against people that deprives them of liberty uh, in an arbitrary manner. The case of the NAS Foundation was resisted by the Union of India through the voice of the uh, acting Solicitor General. Uh, he defended Section 377, essentially saying that it was very important to protect minors. Well, that was met by the acceptance by the petitioner that the uh, case would not disturb the application of the section to minors, that it was extremely useful to stop the spread of AIDS by MSM, um, and uh, that uh, was on an assumption that everybody would obey section 377, but uh, the uh, evidence which was accepted by uh, the court was uh, that far from being a successful strategy to prevent the spread of HIV, uh, the criminalisation and denigration of people was absolutely the wrong strategy if your objective was to ensure that MSM didn't spread HIV. Thirdly, the Solicitor-General uh, contended that if there was a limited intrusion into privacy, a derivative non-express right, which has been upheld in the Supreme Court of India, then that was justified uh, on moral grounds, that this was a high moral principle which was accepted by the people of India, uh, even though it had been imposed upon them in 1861 without any consultation with them. And according to a lot of evidence which is recounted in the decision of the Delhi High Court, is contrary to the ancient traditional uh, history of uh, India as revealed in the Sanskrit documents and in carvings on the... Uh, Janta Caves and the Ellora Caves and on the Ashoka Pillar, one of the great iconic symbols of uh, the Union of India. Uh, the Solicitor General also argued that India had rejected uh, the type of um, removal of Section 377 because it had not implemented uh, in the Lok Sabha and the, the, the federal legislature uh, the recommendations of uh, the Law Commission in 1971, but the Solicitor-General failed to mention, though the judges mentioned it at some length, that subsequently in 2000, in the 172nd report of the Law Commission, it had recommended the removal of the uh, sodomy offence uh, and its reservation only to issues of unconsensual sex and minors. Uh, and finally, the Solicitor-General argued that this was a very hot topic upon which the citizens of India felt very strongly and it should therefore be left to the democratic process. So that was the battle lines, the uh, NAS Foundation saying this is impeding uh, the rights of Indian people to be and express themselves and the government of India through one voice saying... Uh, this is very important, it's very moral, and the Indian people won't tolerate this, and it should be left, to, if anybody, to the legislature. Uh, as a result of the argument, uh, the um, Delhi High Court delivered an extremely lengthy, but I have to say a most eloquent and well-argued and reasoned opinion um, by the two judges in which they found that breach of the Constitution had been uh, demonstrated. They upheld the complaint based on Article 14, the interference in equality of citizens, uh, 
Uh, they uh, upheld the complaint based on Article 15, the non-discrimination on the ground of sex. They upheld uh, the uh, argument based on uh, Article 21, the arbitrary character of the law as criminalising a whole class of people. Uh, they reserved the question of freedom of expression and the interference in expression which is Article 19, and they said they were not deciding that matter. But on all of the three grounds on which they made a decision, they upheld the submissions of the NAS Foundation and the consequential orders were a declaration that save in respect of minors and in respect of unconsensual sexual activity, the uh, provisions of Section 377 were offensive to the Constitution of India and was, there, was therefore, to that extent, invalid. Uh, the, if there were time and if there was a less imperious chair, I would go through and read you passages in the reasoning of Chief Justice Shah because it, it is desirable, in a way, to demonstrate what a masterful opinion this is. I must confess to you, when it came through on the email, I glanced quickly through it. I saw a few items in it, but I didn't really sit down and read it carefully. But for the purpose of giving this lecture, I've had to read it carefully, and it really is a, a, an opinion that commands uh, very deep respect. Uh, but it also does a very important thing. Um, it demonstrates how we in the Commonwealth of Nations... Uh, and with the English language as our link, have no lack of comfort, even in a constitutional case, and even in a very sensitive constitutional case, to refer to the opinions of uh, judges in other countries. It's not something we regard as terribly controversial to do that, because nobody thinks you're bound by the opinions of other courts and other countries. Uh, this is a matter upon which the United States of America and some of the judges over there uh, become extremely temperamental when the suggestion is that you should look at what others are doing. We do it all the time. And uh, Justice uh, Shah and uh, Justice uh, Muralita um, really demonstrate the utility of looking at the opinions of other courts. Uh, they refer to, for example, the decisions of the Supreme Court of Canada about the protection of human dignity, to decisions of the Supreme Court of the United States on privacy in Olmstead against the United States, and Roe and Wade, and Bowers and Hardwick. They refer also to the decision of the Supreme Court of the United States in Lawrence of Texas, which about four years earlier, five years earlier, had struck down the sodomy offence which had been inherited in the United States from the United Kingdom's legal tradition uh, and uh, declared it unconstitutional according to the standards of the United States Constitution. Uh, they referred to a decision uh, of the um, Constitutional Court of South Africa uh, in a 1998 case which struck down the South African uh, law inherited from the apartheid time. They referred to the decisions uh, of the High Court of Fiji, of the Court of Appeal of Hong Kong, and most recently of the Nepal Supreme Court. Uh, on one matter, um, the question of the so-called um, 
um, clash between the democratic principle and the role of the courts. The, um, uh, the Delhi High Court referred to and quoted what Lord Hoffman had said uh, in re the application of Alkenberry Developments, the Secretary of State for the Environment, in 2001. Quote, There is no conflict between human rights and the democratic principle. Respect for human rights requires that certain basic rights of individuals should not be capable in any circumstances of being overridden by the majority, even if they think the public interest so requires. Other rights should be capable of being overridden only in restricted circumstances. These are rights which belong to individuals simply by virtue of their humanity, independently of any utilitarian calculation. The protection of these basic rights for majority decisions requires the independent impartial tribunals should have the power to decide whether the legislation infringes them and either, as in the United States, to declare the legislation valid or, as in the United Kingdom, to declare that they're incompatible with governing human rights instruments. Well, in India, by reason of the Bill of Rights in the Indian Constitution, they are in the category of the United States. If it offends the uh, Bill of Rights uh, and the uh, articles of the Indian Constitution, their right and duty as a final court is to say so and to strike the legislation down, which is precisely what uh, they did. The foundation for the decision of Justice Shah and his colleague uh, was not, however, this international jurisprudence. That was added uh, in the elaboration, but the foundation was uh, very strongly based both in uh, the uh, wider uh, jurisprudence and sources about the Constitution of India that are quoted, but also in uh, strong statements of the Supreme Court of India. You would expect that an intermediate court, like the Delhi High Court, being subject to the um, uh, Supreme Court of India, to which court the matter is now to be returned, uh, would be paying the closest attention to the rulings of the Supreme Court of India, and that is exactly what uh, was done. Uh, the court uh, uh, quoted the authority of the Supreme Court of India with those great judges, uh, Justice Bhagwati and Justice Krishna Iyer, uh, on the wide meaning that is given to the articles, uh, 14, 15, 19 and 21, uh, of the Constitution. Uh, they quoted uh, the um, passages uh, of the uh, Supreme Court insisting that the court is the ultimate protector and it would be an irony if you had to simply refer such matters back to Parliament uh, to decide it, given that Parliament is the source uh, of the law which is being challenged and that you can't leave that to Parliament. That has to be uh, a burden shouldered by the court itself. But there are two passages in the reasons um, in which uh, the court quoted uh, Pandit uh, Jawaharlal Nehru. If you want to see... Uh, Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru. You can see him in the shop face window of the Commonwealth Secretariat uh, in uh, Pall Mall in London at the moment. The original uh, heads of government who came together in 1949 to form the new Commonwealth once India had decided to become a republic. The new basis was then accepted. So there he is uh, in the photo with King George VI uh, there is Mr Chifley, the Prime Minister of Australia at the time. 
There is Dr Milan of apartheid South Africa looking extremely uncomfortable in the company of these uh, newfangled nations. Uh, and um, Nehru is quoted in this uh, opinion twice. One of the quotes uh, is a marvellous passage in which Nehru, during the independence struggle, attacked the British for the so-called Criminal Tribes Act. This was a legislation which had been enacted by the British um, administrators of uh, India uh, during the Raj to uh, criminalise a whole tribe on the basis that they were getting up to a lot of mischief and doing lots of criminal things and therefore the whole tribe would be criminalised. And Nehru said in stirring words, you just can't do that. You can't uh, designate a whole group of people as criminal. And then, of course, the point is made by Justice Shah that that is exactly what Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code does. It criminalises everybody who happens to be homosexual and makes them live criminal lives because they are criminalised by virtue of their identity and you can't draw a distinction between the acts and the person. This is integral to the person and they quote in support of that proposition what Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said in the United States in Lawrence, Texas. But at the very end of his reasons, of the reasons of uh, the Delhi High Court, there is a little passage which I think will give you something of the flavour of the punch which exists at the very end of this opinion, uh, uh, where this is what uh, the court said. The notion of equality in the Indian constitution flows from the objective resolution moved by Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru on the 13th of December 1946. Nehru, in his speech, moving this resolution, wished the House should consider the resolution not in the spirit of, national, of narrow legal wording, but rather to look to the spirit behind the resolution. This is what he said. Quote, this is Nehru. Words are magic things, often enough. But even the magic of words cannot sometimes convey the magic of the human spirit and of a nation's passion. The resolution seeks very feebly to tell the world of what we have thought or dreamt of for so long and what we now hope to achieve in the near future. Uh, and then uh, Justice A.P. Shah and his colleague go on to say, if there is one constitutional tenet that can be said to be underlying the themes of the Indian Constitution, it is that of inclusiveness. This court believes that the Indian Constitution reflects the, deeply the, the value deeply ingrained in Indian society, nurtured over several generations, the inclusiveness that Indian society traditionally displayed, literally in every aspect of life, is manifest in recognising a role in society for everyone. Those perceived by the majority as deviants or different are not on that score to be excluded or ostracised. Uh, and he goes on in similar vein. But it's, I think you'll agree, a very powerful invocation uh, of the founding Prime Minister of India and one of the founders of the independence and freedom movement of India as a sort of uh, intellectual unifying footing for the notion of inclusiveness with which Section 377 was fundamentally at odds. 
So, uh, what is the significance of this case? Well, it's on its way to the Supreme Court of India, and as one knows, if one sits in a final court of appeal, uh, or indeed any court of appeal, uh, the fate of cases is never certain, and it'll all depend on uh, the judges who will hear and determine that case. But of this, it can be said, the Indian Supreme Court is a very distinguished court. It is, in fact, uh, the court governing more people than any other independent court in the whole world. Uh, and uh, it's an uncorrupted court, uh, and therefore we can expect that it'll be heard. One expects that the government of India might resolve who's going to speak on its behalf by the time the Union of India gets up to the Supreme Court, but that remains to be seen. The reaction in India to the NAS Foundation decision was mixed. News commentators um, uh, were alternatively surprised, astonished, pleased in some cases, uh, and uh, in others uh, downplaying the significance of the case, suggesting uh, that uh, we wouldn't want to join uh, the Western societies, we wouldn't want to uh, uh, allow too much visibility of the gay community because basically they're Americans and others who are uh, not really reflective of the society of India. Uh, the, de the decision was attacked um, by uh, leaders of many of the religions of India who came together in a common cause, as often happens in this uh, matter. Uh, dangers uh, of um, Victorian morality were um, referred to in some of the press uh, and um, the... Um, but uh, on the whole... Uh, given the significance of the case, uh, the decision was one of muted surprise. A past Chief Justice of India, a very distinguished and highly intelligent uh, man and judge, uh, J.S. Verma, who was Chief Justice about uh, ten years ago, uh, said that um, uh, in respect of unnatural sex, uh, we don't want to go the way of the West and that whilst the actual orders of the Delhi High Court might be supportable, he expected that the Supreme Court of India would give a narrower uh, reading and narrower reasons uh, and uh, come to a similar conclusion, but without uh, the strong affirmations of equality, uh, non-discrimination, non-discrimination on the ground of sex and non-arbitrariness, which permeates the reasons of the Delhi High Court. But what's happening in the rest of the Commonwealth, given that 41 of 53 countries of the Commonwealth of Nations, of which the Queen is the head, and which is meeting in Jamaica uh, in November, late November of this year, uh, in the Chogham Conference, what's happening in the rest of the Commonwealth? Well, uh, the answer is that save for those countries which are mentioned in the opinion of the Delhi High Court, uh, essentially the old dominions, uh, Canada, New Zealand, um, Australia, uh, South Africa and the United Kingdom, which have all got rid of the provisions equivalent to Section 377, either by court decision or, in most cases, by legislation following the Wolfenden report. Save for them, uh, the question as to what is happening in the Commonwealth uh, and what has happened in recent times is virtually nothing. 
In Singapore in 2006, a committee of the Law Society of Singapore, uh, in a strong report, a unanimous report, recommended that the provisions of Section 377 of the um, Singapore Penal Code, which is in identical terms to the Indian, should be repealed. That went up to the uh, Parliament with a draft bill to remove the law in Parliament, and the Minister Mentor, as he is called, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, the founding Prime Minister of Singapore, uh, made a statement in which he said he didn't understand why the state should be intruding into people's bedrooms, and he thought this was leading good people to leave Singapore, so it wouldn't be a bad thing if they uh, brought uh, the reality into line uh, with the law. But when it got to the Parliament of Singapore, a professor of law, no less, from uh, the National uh, University in Singapore, uh, Professor Teo, um, uh, was an appointed member of the Parliament, and she got up and she denounced the proposal as slouching to Gomorrah, uh, a phrase which he borrowed from uh, Judge Bork in the United States. He's written a book called Slouching to Gomorrah. Uh, unfortunately, this professor has become caught up in a, a fundamentalist Christian uh, community and in um, Confucian uh, Singapore, she was able to persuade a majority of the members of the parliament of Singapore not to go ahead with the uh, reform of the legislation, so it was defeated and uh, nothing is happening in Singapore. Singapore is practising what was the law in Australia in my youth, a law of wink-wink, nudge-nudge, you don't become too visible and we won't trouble you. Uh, and that uh, is the situation as it remains in Singapore. In Malawi, uh, in the last few weeks, uh, a country which has one of the strongest uh, laws against homosexual people, uh, promising 14 years imprisonment upon conviction for uh, a sodomy offence, uh, and which last August, August 2008, enacted a prohibition on same-sex marriage. Karl Rove has a lot to answer for for these laws. They have spread right around the world. Uh, but the Secretary of State for HIV-AIDS, uh, Mary Shawa, uh, made a speech uh, within the last two weeks in which she said, uh, look, the situation of HIV is so desperate in Malawi that we have to do something about this and we're not going to be able to be successful if we don't reach out to MSM. Uh, and uh, the consequence is that she has urged on the good people of Malawi that there should be a new strategy which will embrace the MSM uh, in the uh, struggle against HIV. Uh, in Malawi, 14% of the general population uh, of males uh, are coming in diagnosed in hospitals as HIV positive, 14%. But in a group uh, of uh, MSM, the level was 21%, uh, so that uh, it's a significant differential and it demonstrates the need to do exactly what uh, the minister uh, said. In Nigeria, legislation was enacted in 2006, uh, prohibit, it's called the Same-Sex Marriage Prohibition Act, and it uh, prohibits any marriage being recognised other than the marriage under the Marriage Act uh, between a man and a woman, uh, and other than an Islamic marriage or other than a customary law marriage. Uh, but quite apart from the marriage prohibition, 
there are uh, detailed provisions in the Nigerian legislation prohibiting uh, any uh, so-called gay clubs or anybody uh, engaging in any activity promoting uh, uh, amorous relationships, as it's described, uh, between people of the same sex. Uh, in Australia, uh, we also, uh, during the former, the last parliament, enacted legislation prohibiting same-sex uh, marriage and uh, forbidding the recognition of such marriages uh, if they had been uh, celebrated in another country, so that a Spanish or a Netherlands or a um, uh, uh, Canadian marriage cannot be recognised in Australia. Um, the present government has done nothing to repeal or to commit itself to repeal that, uh, and on the contrary has continued uh, the policy of the previous government, which is to disallow even provisions for a um, same-sex partnership or civil union. So that uh, doesn't seem to be on the um, agenda for the moment. Um, however, it has to be said that the federal parliament last year enacted a law repealing discrimination against homosexual people on matters such as pensions, um, taxation and social security benefits so in your fiscal and financial uh, position, you are given equality, but not in your uh, dignity recognition of relationships. But uh, one must be grateful for small mercies in this world. In Kenya, um, in the last uh, two weeks, uh, it was announced that the next Kenya census is going to include a question as to whether you are a homosexual. Given that uh, the draconian section 377 is also in force in Kenya, given that at the Commonwealth Law Conference in Nairobi, when Edwin Cameron, uh, a judge from the Constitutional Court of South Africa now, invited a group of uh, gay and lesbian uh, Kenyans to come and have a drink and a nosh up at the hotel, uh, given that we thought maybe 100 would turn up and we provided with the alcohol and eats Two turned up, two. And when we asked them, well, why aren't your friends here? They said, we're afraid of you. We're afraid of judges. We're very, very afraid of police. And I don't think many people in Kenya are going to give honest answers to the census. Why would they? Where does it lead? What advantage is there? Um, uh, in Jamaica, where they're, uh, they're, they're going to have uh, the Chogham meeting, there's a lot of violence, rap music... Uh, and um, uh, demonstrations and antipathy to homosexuals. Uh, but the star turn at the moment is Uganda, where the Honourable David Bahati has introduced the Anti-Homosexuality Bill 2009, which was introduced into the legislature of Uganda on the 14th of October. So this is breaking news. I'm sure it's not breaking news to many in this room, but... It's something that is just happening. This measure uh, includes the death penalty for various uh, homosexual offences of aggravated homosexuality, uh, and it includes heavy punishment involving uh, some, for some offences, life imprisonment, for others, three years imprisonment, for parents failing to report uh, the homosexuality of a child, 
teachers failing to report the homosexuality or suspected homosexuality of a pupil, uh, landlord failing to uh, report homosexuality uh, to the authorities, uh, and so on. Not content with enforcing these laws in Uganda, there is a provision for universal jurisdiction so that any Ugandan who commits any of these offences beyond Uganda can be dealt with under the law if ever they're returned to Uganda. Needless to say, this has produced a lot of protests from the international human rights community and from UNAIDS, the World Health Organization and other bodies because of the highly counter-effective results of such legislation. Uh, Justice Goldstone for the International Bar Association Human Rights Initiative has written a very strong letter to the President of Uganda. So has uh, the Commonwealth Lawyers Association and various other bodies. But what you may well ask in all of this, against the background of the powerful uh, uh, statements of the Delhi High Court and against uh, the uh, inaction of the Commonwealth and members of the country, countries of the Commonwealth, what is the Commonwealth Secretariat with its picture of the happy grouping of uh, the eight original members of the Commonwealth uh, on the uh, window opposite uh, Marlborough House? What is the Commonwealth Secretariat doing? Just before he demitted office, I went and saw uh, Don McKinnon, now Sir Don McKinnon uh, of New Zealand, and said to him, you are leaving office, you have had two terms, you will not be re-elected. Before you leave, you should do uh, what should be done in the Commonwealth Secretariat. If the Commonwealth Secretariat had had a similarly passive stance in respect of the human rights of people on the basis of their race or the human rights of people on the basis uh, of their gender, it would be a scandal and the Commonwealth would not have survived. Uh, you should make a very strong effort to uh, produce a change in the logjam that now afflicts the Commonwealth. You should create uh, a group of wise persons to uh, go around, consult, seek to mediate, and discuss and uh, seek change. Uh, Sir Don McKinnon demitted office and he did nothing. Nothing. Uh, The Commonwealth Lawyers Association resolution has been uh, referred to the Commonwealth Secretariat uh, and uh, so far I haven't seen any report of any response from the Commonwealth Secretariat. The International Bar Association, the Human Rights Initiative, has produced its recommendations and has adopted sexuality as an agenda item for the IBA, uh, communicated this, but nothing has been done. It was interesting to me to look on the window of this uh, work front uh, office of the Commonwealth Secretary. I like that fact. I like um, uh, shop front. Uh, It's something that we've seen in legal aid, and it's good to see a great uh, intergovernmental agency doing this. And across the window, they say, serving new generations... Well, they're serving new generations of Commonwealth citizens, but they're not serving them if they're GLBT. They're not serving them. And it also says, and this is a large banner, uh, which is in a sense their logo for the Commonwealth, uh, working as a trusted partner for all Commonwealth people. Working as a trusted partner for all Commonwealth people. Well, 
if I ask myself, do I trust the Commonwealth Secretariat against the background of its inertia and inaction, well, there has to be a doubt about it. I'm not blaming individual members of the Secretariat. I'm sure they do what they can. Uh, but I do think, and I repeat, if there had been such inertia on the issues of race, in which the Commonwealth Secretariat has had a proud record, and in issues of gender and in issues of poverty, it would be a scandal. But on this issue, there is a deathly silence, and that silence must be broken. The opportunity for the breaking of the silence is clearly presented by the upcoming meeting of the Commonwealth Heads of Government uh, in the Caribbean. That is a most unfriendly environment in which to raise this issue, but maybe that's the very place in which this issue should be raised and confronted, because until confronted, we will just go on being nasty to people. In Australia, we were originally, and for a very long time, and indeed quite recently, very nasty to Aboriginal people. We did not treat them as full equals. We treated them with discrimination. We excluded them from civil rights. Uh, and the only way that began to change and led to a national apology to them was when we got to know them and to do, speak with them as equals. Uh, we were also in Australia very nasty indeed to Asian Australians, extremely nasty. We had the white Australia policy right into my mature age. Uh, it was ultimately removed in 1966. Uh, but, and um, how was that changed? It was changed when we began to know gay people and when we began, when we began to know uh, uh, Asian people uh, and when we began to realise that they were people of full dignity uh, and uh, entitled to full rights. Well, similarly, with uh, homosexuality, we have to learn to know each other and to um, learn from such steps as the decision of the Delhi High Court. I really commend that decision to you. It's on the web. You can find it, and it is worth reading. It is a, a very powerful, strong uh, and uh, marvellous statement of equality and human dignity, and it's a clarion call to the new members of the Commonwealth to uh, cease the silence and to act to remove this affront to human dignity and human rights. Mr Michael has very kindly said that he'll take some questions, probably even take comments. Yes.
He was certainly good not getting before him back to this country. I didn't quite understand the first question as to uh, as to um, the hostility in Jamaica. Of course, it's a very Uh, Jamaica has the uh, full anti-sodomy law and enforces it. Right. Uh, and uh, they are the seat of the Chogham meeting. Uh, it's interesting to observe the chair of the Commonwealth at the moment uh, is Uganda. Uh, it also enjoys a seat on the Security Council of the United Nations, which, of course... Um, is uh, the organisation that's committed to all of the great international treaties um, which have been interpreted as extending to uh, issues of sexuality, as Justice Shah and his colleague point out in the NAS Foundation case. Um, as to uh, India, I think I did see the BBC coverage of the Delhi High Court and it did show that religious leaders came out and made a number of uh, statements uh, one, an appeal has been brought by one of the respondents, who is an individual religious um, uh, guru, I suppose you would call him, of whom there are many, many in India, uh, and uh, he has uh, lodged a claim um, saying that the Supreme Court has to set aside the decision of the Delhi High Court basically for two reasons. First of all, uh, that um, if the um, Section 377 is quashed, uh, there will be a huge outbreak of venereal disease in India. Uh, and second, if Section 377 is quashed, uh, the Indian Army, which silently guards the borders of the nation, including in very cold climate in the north of um, Kashmir, will, um, as one newspaper report put it, turn pansy and not guard the nation, and the nation will... Uh, fall victim to uh, this uh, terrible affront to its security. Uh, that is about the level of uh, some of the opposition. Any other questions? Yes, Professor Moran. Uh, I think it is important to emphasise that the structure of the decision 
is very much grounded in Indian constitutional law, as you would expect. Uh, and the other material is put in at various points. When, for example, the court is dealing with the argument of the acting Solicitor General that um, uh, this law isn't really enforced and therefore you don't really have to worry too much about it, then they quote what Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said in Lawrence, that uh, this law remains as a criminalisation of a whole class of people and uh, therefore you don't have to enforce the law. And he quoted a number of uh, decisions uh, of international bodies, including the Human Rights Committee in Tunan against Australia. So it is not gratuitous use of international material uh, if one is talking strategically and looking at the Supreme Court of India, you would have to be careful about the use of international material if it was thought that you were dipping deep into international material because of the paucity uh, of the reasoning or the lack of strength of the reasoning of the Indian Supreme Court in the areas uh, which were nominated as the basis of the attack on uh, Section 377. But it is very a very powerful and well-crafted opinion, I think. Uh, would that affect uh, the countries of the Caribbean uh, and of Africa and of uh, Asia, which still have these offences in such large numbers, unreformed? Uh, well, it might. It might become part of the process um, of a shock to conscience, which happened in this country with the Wolfenden Report. Um, there's, there's a very good book written on how, within a space of 10 years, uh, this country moved from the recommendation of Sir John Wolfenden and his uh, Committee of the Great and Good to uh, parliamentary uh, measures. Uh, and it, it didn't happen overnight. It involved a whole process of letter writing to the papers, NGOs uh, jumping up and down and becoming involved, uh, securing the support in Parliament of um, uh, heterosexual uh, members of Parliament who saw the logic and reasoning of the report. And uh, I have actually written, uh, when I thought that the former Secretary-General Don McKinnon might just do something about a strategy for the Commonwealth, I wrote a brilliant essay, even if I say so myself, seeking to extrapolate from the British experience into an international experience of how one would go about a, a committee of wise people and, and so on. It wasn't, unfortunately, put to use by the previous Secretary-General. I'm hopeful that the present Secretary-General, who is himself from India and should be proud of the decision of the Delhi High Court, might have a different point of view. I don't know. But how one breaks the logjam, that is the question, because the plain fact of the matter is that the only countries that have done so, either mostly through legislative process and some through judicial, are the so-called Old Dominions. The new Commonwealth almost without exception, has not changed their laws. When the General Assembly of the United Nations had before it last December a resolution or November, a resolution moved by Brazil and France uh, condemning 
the criminal offences and violence against homosexual people. Uh, it got a majority, but only just. Uh, only one African Commonwealth country voted for it, Mauritius. Even South Africa, which has a constitutional protection against um, uh, discrimination against people on the ground of sexual orientation, a reward to the gay people of South Africa who took such a leading part in the struggle against apartheid, um, even it couldn't muster a vote uh, on the occasion. So uh, it's a, it's a somewhat depressing and gloomy situation and it isn't easy to see a way through. But then you have to look to analogies and you have to look to what happened in other countries. And as I always tell gay audiences, it's very important to recognise that the most important people in our drama are heterosexual people. They are the great majority. They are people who, if they get to know homosexual people, know that they're just as interesting, good, and bad and boring as everyone else, uh, and that... Uh, this is really a serious affront to human dignity and especially in the age of HIV AIDS and in particular in countries of the Caribbean and in Africa, it's a really counterproductive measure at the moment. So part of the strategy may be through a, HIV AIDS but that runs the risk that you confuse the issue of sexuality with HIV AIDS. And that is a risky and maybe undesirable confusion. But it, it is, we have reached a very significant stalemate. And if anyone here has any opportunities to raise their voice and do something uh, to cause a great deal of fuss and trouble um, of a peaceful kind on the eve of the Chogham meeting, they should do it. Because all of them are going to be there in the sunshine in the Caribbean, and it would be a very nice thing if we made sure that they didn't have too much peace and quiet and, <laughs> and that they were made to face up to this affront to human dignity of the Commonwealth. Yes, up the back. Yes, you're quite right. Well, first of all, uh, please don't think that it was a sure-run thing or an easy passage to the reform of the law in this country or the reform of the law in Australia. Uh, it was highly contentious. 
It was extremely contentious in some parts of Australia, uh, particularly in Queensland and in Western Australia, where in Western Australia it only passed through the legislature with uh, a preamble which contained a statement saying Parliament does not approve of homosexuals, but we're doing this anyway. Uh, and uh, that preamble was subsequently removed. And in fact, Western Australia has now got some of the most liberal laws on the subject, um, showing once again that once you start this process and see that uh, civilization doesn't stop, uh, things get done. You ask, what can the Secretary-General of the Commonwealth do? Well, the one thing he can't do is to do nothing. He's supposed to be a leader. He's supposed to be a person... Uh, who is playing a role uh, for, what did I say were those words? Uh, a trusted partner of all people of the Commonwealth and a partner for the new generations of the Commonwealth. Please don't give me this rebadging when you don't mean it. Um, Bishop Tutu uh, has said, uh, responding to his sense of shock uh, about the reaction in Africa to homosexuality, uh, when asked to explain it, he said, well, everyone has to have someone to look down on. But what has to be explained is that uh, the, the struggle against sexuality discrimination has a lot of similarities with apartheid. This is an infantile disorder. This is a, a disorder that stigmatises people for an aspect of their being uh, and uh, it must, people must have very short memories if they have forgotten the struggle against uh, racial discrimination now to be themselves indulging in it and introducing legislation in the country which is the, the head of the, the, uh, the chair of the Commonwealth um, to in, in introduce the death penalty on, uh, as an anti-homosexual measure. I'm not sure what can be done, but it can't be nothing. Um, I've got yep. three hands up, and I think we'll, you can keep it short. We'll take those questions, and then we'll, we'll liberate our speaker. Um, and the far side first. I just wonder if the way forward is about distinguished members of the like yourself, like Hong Kong, Edmund Hamilton, Nelson Mandela, and Jack
think we'll take the next question as well, and perhaps Michael can respond to um, all, all three. Yes. Should we take Sarah Wood's question too and then respond to all three? First of all, um, in respect of the Commonwealth Secretariat and the Commonwealth of Nations uh, as a whole, I suppose you could call me a hopeless uh, optimist and a, a naive, uh, uh, but I do know that the Commonwealth Secretariat has done some good things in the past, in particular in promoting the Bangalore principles on the use of human rights norms, uh, things of that kind, technical things within the legal and judicial professions. Uh, I'm not sure that you can just turn up in a country and make speeches. If I go to Uganda with, uh, and this law is passed, I might get the death penalty uh, <laughs> because uh, promoting uh, um, a homosexual lifestyle, uh, I really dislike that word. It generally is used by uh, churches and the like, but promoting that uh, has some very serious consequences. Um, so that um, uh, that's why uh, it seemed to me that some initiative, it really would have been a scandal and the Commonwealth would not have survived if it had been silent on race and on gender and on poverty. Um, and somehow we've got to break this logjam. Now, if we can, we've got at the table the majority of the nations of the world that still have these criminal laws. It is not a phenomenon of the other empires. It is a phenomenon of the British Empire. Um, uh, and um, there have been moves. Uh, there was a suggestion that the United Kingdom um, would take some initiative in the Chogha meeting, and uh, I did make a representation to the Minister uh, of Foreign Affairs of Australia to do something, and I've heard some reports that something is being done. Whether that survives into the final meetings, I don't know. But in life you never accept what is wrong. Uh, even if you fail, it is important to try and to do what you can. And I will not write off the Commonwealth of Nations or the Secretariat, uh, and I believe that it has done good things in human rights, 
and we should be turning our mind into how we can get it to work better. Now, your question about why um, uh, the heterosexual and not majority are, uh, are so nasty because it doesn't affect them. Well, it does affect them uh, if you look to the fact that those who mainly lobbied against the General Assembly resolution uh, were a combination of the Holy See and the uh, Islamic Conference, the World Islamic Conference. They became, uh, with the African and other Commonwealth countries, the core of the resistance to the resolution. Uh, it always struck me as odd that the Holy See should be doing this because the Pope himself has said that you should not have any discrimination against homosexual people uh, and uh, that the criminal law should be repealed. But when it came to a resolution calling for this, uh, the Holy See and the World Islamic Conference took a very leading part in organising their troops. Uh, so, uh, and people are loyal to their religions and uh, they don't want to get offside with their religious instruction and so on. So I think there's a lot, lot in that and how one tackles that I don't know. One can criticise the Anglican Church and the Archbishop of Canterbury, but it, the Anglican Church is one of the few religious bodies in the world that is having this discussion. I mean, it's having the discussion, and fundamentally, because from its origins, I'm an Anglican myself, from its origins, it was always a church of compromise. It had to have a place for the Catholic wing and the Protestant wing, and therefore, it's always been seeking to find these compromises where people can live together under the same roof. And so something is happening there, but unfortunately you can't say that about Rome until a pope comes along and says it's all over. When that happens, it'll be over that day. That's, that's what you can do in the last absolute monarchy of this world. Um, as to what the courts can do, I think the courts can do things, and that's why this decision is so very important. Reading about the Uganda legislation, I read that last December the Uganda High Court struck down the death penalty by hanging. Uganda has more offences with the death penalty than any other African country, and that's saying something. But the Uganda uh, High Court held that uh, execution by hanging was cruel and unusual punishment against the constitution of Uganda, and it also is held that you have to uh, bring people to execution within two years of their conviction and sentence. So it's, it's, it's taking uh, a stance, and it also had a case uh, of two lesbian women who went to it who claimed uh, discrimination and that they were being discriminated by the government, and it held that the provisions of the Uganda Constitution uh, guaranteeing equality to all citizens meant just that and that they were not to be discriminated against. So it may be that if the Indian Supreme Court upholds the decision of the Delhi High Court, that will become a really important symbol of what can be done by the use of courts. It's a sad thing to think that you have to use courts rather than a democratic process. But uh, if that is the only way to assure the protection of fundamental rights, then that will be another strategy. And I've no doubt all the legal NGOs in the Commonwealth countries are going to be watching very closely what happens in the Supreme Court of India because that will probably uh, send a signal that will be very important, more important than the Constitutional Court of South Africa, 
because of the fact that that is the peculiar result of the anti-apartheid apartheid, um, resolution. It will be a very important decision if the Supreme Court of India upholds the case. I have to say Edwin Cameron and I went to a conference at his invitation in Madras and we spoke and Edwin Cameron made his speech in which he revealed his HIV positive status. Uh, Justice A.P. Shah was in the audience. Um, and it is true, I'm not saying that that had any impact on this decision, but uh, when we battled against white Australia, the way we changed it was we began to know Asian Australians. And that really changed people's attitude. And I think it's the same about homosexuals and bisexuals and sexual minorities generally and transgender people. The only way you change attitudes is when you get to know other people. And that's why everywhere I go now, uh, whatever I'm talking on, it can be the rule against perpetuities uh, or the statute of Mortmain, but I always let it drop so that people who are sitting there in the room can look at that man and think, do I really hate this person? Is this person really an evil doer? Uh, do I really hate him? And do I hate his partner who's been with him for 40 years? That, you know, is my secret weapon. If you have a 40-year partnership, that's so terribly conservative and respectable <laughs> that no one can negate it. I was going to endorse everything Michael had said, but conservative and respectable, no. Uh, uh, the, um, some of what he was describing and the, the depths of denial reminded me of John Julius Norwich's description of the House of Lords debate many years ago now on the Wolfenden Report, in which Lord Montgomery of Alamein rose to his feet and said, I commanded a million men in the desert and I can tell your lordships, not one of them ever did this filthy thing. Uh, the, he also described the, the unique sound of 400 silk handkerchiefs being stuffed into 400 noble mouths. Um, the, um, <clears throat> very encouraging, though, I think, to hear some of Michael's last comments, because the role of judici judiciaries is not a negligible one, and it's not only that they have an interpretive function, it is also that in more than one uh, instance, judiciaries have got governments and parliaments off a hook of their own making. Judges have been able to decide things that parliaments are afraid to decide, and it may be that, therefore, in that field, uh, <coughs> there, there is something to hope for. Um, I, you've twice now expressed your appreciation of Michael, uh, and his, uh, the talk he's given um, in asking you to do it once more. May I express my own appreciation of um, somebody who I think by any standard is a brave and principled man to whom we owe a great debt of gratitude. <laughs>